My, look at that time. <laughs> All right, let me ask this as I start. Uh, nobody has potatoes cooking on the stove right now, right? We'll see how much uh, time the Lord needs to talk to us here today. Now, it could be quite easy if uh, we submit very quickly to what he has to say, then uh, we will be in good position. But if it takes me a while uh, to convince your heart of what he has to say, we might just have to settle in for a little while here. We are in Psalm 24, and we are looking at verse number 6 today. Psalm 24, verse 6, the big question is, who is this King of Glory? And the whole psalm is centered around that question that is raised twice there toward the end of the chapter. It's a powerful little psalm. It speaks of the greatness of our God, and uh, it focuses our attention especially on Him. And so today we're going to look very carefully at verse 6. And verse 6 seems like it's somewhat out of, out of place in, in the whole picture of this psalm in that sense that verse 7 begins, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now the question is raised, Who is the King of glory? And it answers, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And yet, verse 6, look at that when you back up. Just before those tremendous verses. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, even Jacob. That's where we're focused here today. And I trust that the Lord works in our hearts. So let's ask Him as we begin. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to have your word, to be able to sit here together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of yours, and and ask you to teach us. There is much that we need to know and, and learn and apply, especially, and your word is abundantly given to us, and thank you for that. Even as we take this time to Meditate upon it. Help us to understand and help us to do what you call us to do. For your name is great, and we seek to worship you even in our attention to your word today. Thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the verse that we see here, verse number 6, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Even Jacob. I think of Jacob because here he is in the middle. You say, well, what's Jacob in the middle of this for? Jacob? Jacob, what do we know of him? He was a deceiver, right? He did, he did all kinds of manipulation to get the things he wanted. You wouldn't want him for a brother. You would not. But here's the beauty of it. Who is invited to seek the Lord? Even Jacob's deceivers, manipulators, irritants, even Jacob. The verse that we're looking at here raises a, a crucial point, really, and, and demonstrates a, a, 
demands is a better word. A particular action on our part. The psalmist asked those twice, those two times toward the end of the psalm, who is this king of glory? The answer is given in the midst of those verses. Verse number 8. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He answers again in verse 10. The Lord of hosts. Why, he is the king of glory. So what is crucial here? There are two things, I believe, as we look at our passage. First is the recognition of the one who is approaching. The picture here. He's heading up to the gates, right? And the declaration is, open up and let me in. Who is this one? Recognition of who he is. We must know him. We must know him. He must be known. And the second thing that goes along with this that's crucial, I believe, is an action. It calls on the doors to be opened. Right? Open the doors. Lift up the gates. Verse today, verse number 6 tells us how to know him and how to respond to him. Let me get right to application. Right? Either we seek him or we do not seek him. rather personal. Either I seek him or I do not seek him. Even more do you seek him or you do not seek him. I started backwards with the application. Now I tell all my hermeneutic students don't do it this way. I walk them through the procedure of proper Bible study. Application, that's at the end of the the order of things. We start with observation. That's our first step, observation. You dig through the text, you you glean the facts of the passages, you, you look at the context, you look at the historical background, you go into geography, you go into history, you go into theology, but you, you're gleaning facts, gleaning facts, gleaning facts. That's not application yet. I had one wonderful student this past semester who couldn't wait for application. I kept saying, slow down, it's not, the, it's not time yet. But he was like a horse that the leash had broken, the reins and all, and he's just running full speed. And every time he sent me a paper, it was only three pages long, it was twelve. Eight pages of application. It's coming. Hold it. It's coming. So observation, you go through the facts, you, you do a thorough job of coming up with the facts, and then I let you interpret. And most people say, well, that sounds magical, that sounds wonderful. It's really very simple. It's just making clear and precise statements about the facts. That's all it really is. It's, what do you see? What does it say? Just explain it now. Explain it. Just say what it says. No application. Just explain the facts. Just explain the facts. And, and that's, that's hard to be patient when you want application just to state the facts. I told them, you cannot say therefore at the end of your phrase. You cannot say so and move on to the application. Just say the phrase. This is what it says. 
So we went through that. And then I let go and said, application time. But even that was even uh, tempered a bit with patience because the first step of application applies to the original reader. That individual who saw this for the first time, whose the message was sent to them specifically. What does it mean to them? What does it mean to them? In their culture, in their problems, in their, their issues, what, what is he saying to them specifically? And again, the desire is, but I want to say what it means to me. And that's the next step. I say, okay, now that you have the facts and you understand them and explain them and shown how it applies to them, now what do you take from that and apply it to us? What do you do with that? That's very serious business, by the way. Very serious business. It, it's a process that is not complete unless you ask, how does it change me? Right? We must ask that question. How does it change me? It meant a lot to the original readers. After all, it was written in their context. That's primary application. It's necessary to do all that. But we need to see now, what does it mean to me? Now, you say, well, Pastor, you just started with application. It's because for the last five sermons, I've been doing observation and interpretation with you. Now it's time to get very personal. It's time to get very personal as we look at this passage. This may have been written 2,500, 2,900 years ago. Quite a long time. What's it mean in 2015, here in the month of May, in a very soggy community? What does it mean? The process is not hard, by the way. And as we look at this, we see verse number 6 stand out on the page. Who is it that seeks him? Who seeks him? In this context, we heard the and watched. In our imagination, we watched this king ride up to a city gate. We heard a voice call from that great parade that goes with this king. Open the gate! We've even heard that voice on the other side saying, Who is this king that we should open for him? We've watched that unfold before us. We've asked questions along those lines. We, we understand David wrote the psalm, and, and David knows a little bit about kings, doesn't he? David not only knows a little bit about kings, but he also knows an awful lot about gates and cities. And how one enters it. By the way, he knows an awful lot about the Lord too. And as he writes this passage, he describes him in the first five verses. How great he is in creation. He owns this world, doesn't he? Isn't that what it began with? The earth is the Lord's. And all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He founded it. Upon the seas, verse 2 says. And then we had to ask, well, okay, he's great in creation, but he's also great in his presence. For who can stand before him? And that question is raised so wonderfully in verse 3, especially. Who can, who can approach this king? 
this great king who can stand in his presence. We talked that through. We talked that through. Has two answers. First one is, not me. Because it requires somebody with clean hands and a pure heart. As you can see in verse number four, it's not somebody who's lifted up their soul to falsehood. It's not somebody who has sworn deceitfully. Not me. Not us. But there is one who can. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ. He can stand before his Father on our behalf, can't he? Because all these things were true of him. So we've seen the greatness of our God in creation, our greatness of our God in his person. We've seen the greatness of our God in his grace. And we've spent several weeks on that. When this, verse number 5, is recorded, after we just declared, we can't do it, what shall we receive? Blessings from our Lord and righteousness from our God. Undeserved, wonderful things He has given to us. That we might have a standing before Him. Magnificent things. I just gave it the big term, grace. That's what it is. The grace of our God who allows us not only to have access to that place where He dwells, but also that we can stand there before Him. Stand there before God. These things are wonderful. We read of these things, and yet we realize as we have the whole of Scripture before us, it can only be through Christ that we have forgiveness, that we are are given access to the Father, that we're able to stand before Him. It's only in Christ. It's not by us, right? We didn't do it. He did it. We stand in, in a complete, finished work of Christ without any merit, but that He gave it to us. He gave us His standing. I love John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become sons of God. The right. Exousia. I love that Greek word. I see it. I think exousia. That sounds powerful, doesn't it? That's authority. That comes with jurisdiction. That means you have, you have a, uh, a place where you're allowed to act or to decide as children of God. He's given us that right because we are His children to have access. There's a, a number of stories much like this back in the 1800s when President Lincoln was our president in this country. And he would have in his office, on many occasions, significant individuals, cabinet members, uh, the defense uh, secretaries and such that would come in and talk with him about, you know those of our very serious days, military strategies, and how do you keep a country together that's uh, coming and glued at every seam the president would be in very serious consultation and suddenly that door of his office would fling open and one of his children come running into the room. And they'd come right around his desk and sit in his lap. And he didn't tell them to go away. I don't know if that rattled all these other men who were about their serious business. 
But I kind of think of the picture that this, this has for us is the eternal God gives us access to Him. That we could come into His presence, even while He's running the universe. We can come into His presence through the righteousness of our Savior. And as His children, we could come boldly. We slam open the door. We come running up to Him, and if you allow me to even say it this way, and sit in His lap. He loves us. And He welcomes us. Alright, so the question today. With such an invitation, with such a provision that we can go before Him at any time, with such grace that's been shed abroad for us, with such mercy, with such forgiveness, with such a position, how many of us seek Him? That's the big question, isn't it? How many of us seek Him? I'm afraid to say it this way. Maybe I overstep my, my percentages in my thoughts. I would say many do not seek Him. In this sense. Even as believers who know who He is, who know what He's done, who know all that's applied to us by His grace, we are believers in Him, but do we take the time to seek Him? To seek Him. Look at how that verse just kind of stares at us right in the middle of the passage. This is the generation of those who seek Him. Do you want to be in that generation? Do you want to be counted among these who seek Him? Who seek His face? Now, let me define seek for you. If you just pull out a Strong's Concordance, you have it right before you there, a simple word. It's just a, a basic word that means to tread or frequent. Usually it means to follow for pursuits or for searches. By implication, it means to seek or to ask. And specifically, it means to worship. It's interesting how worship can very easily take on all the, the uh, uh, presentation and all the demonstration and all the words and maybe the music and maybe the, the actions and who knows what not. But if we leave God out of it, it's not worship. For it is seeking Him, right? Seeking Him is the nature of this word. Pursuing Him. I'm going to use them. Following Him. Frequently treading toward Him. I, I looked it up and I found that word is actually used over 200 times in the Bible, which isn't as great as perhaps other words there, but 200 is a lot. If somebody said to you 200 times, seek the Lord, you think they meant it? You want me to try? 200 times, I'll ask you. Do you seek Him? Do you seek Him? Do you seek Him? Do you seek Him? I'm not going to do it. All right. You've got the idea. Why does God say it so often? Can't you see the invitation in all that? Come, He says. 
He's made the path available for us. Seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. You could turn the page. Seek the Lord. Turn the page. Seek the Lord. Turn the page. Seek the Lord. It keeps saying that. We are told to ask and it shall be given unto you. Right? Seek and you shall find. Knock. And the doors shall be opened unto you. What an invitation. Was God kidding? No. We read, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. My word, we aim that right at our country now, don't we? Our country needs such things. Because we live in a place that they do not seek the Lord. And yet it's hurting. It needs forgiveness. It it needs a right standing before Him. It can't make up for that in any other way but to turn to Him. That's it. Seek Him. Seek His face. We pray for that, don't we? Wouldn't you love to see a nation seeking God? Wouldn't you love to be part of that? I would. Well, either a nation will seek God or it will not. The beauty of all this call to seek Him is to seek His face. As you have the words in front of you, even those who seek His face, who seek His face, they're not seeking, or say this, I hope in an understanding way. You'll understand as I get there. They're not primarily seeking grace. They're not primarily seeking blessing. They're not primarily seeking mercy. They're not primarily seeking wealth. They're not primarily seeking help. They are seeking His face. Everything is a result of Him. What He has done. But to seek His face, that is intimacy. That is so personal. You cannot look into somebody's face without them looking into yours too. (laughs) Right? How do you have sincere communication with somebody? They're talking to you about their heart and you're looking around the room. You're convinced they care about you, right? He says, seek my face. This is eyeball to eyeball. Seek my face. Turn to me. Look at me. I look at you. This is what he says. When we look at God, I know this is true. When we look at him and we see him for who he is, we're we're astounded by how sinful we are. Can't help that, can we? For the greater that he is, the, the, the more devastated I hope we get of ourselves. This is a psalm, or well, it could be a psalm, but it's actually not. Go to the book of Lamentations for a moment, chapter 3. You're familiar with a handful of verses right in the middle of this chapter where it talks about the Lord's mercy is new every morning. I love that phrase. The other day I was uh, reading this through just in my morning time, working my way through this chapter, and, 
And uh, I'm going to read to you what is around that phrase. That phrase, verse 22 and or 23, 22 and 23, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Back up to verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness, and my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Crushed. Put it in context. Jeremiah is writing this, uh, this dirge. It's been defined that way. He's writing this dirge. He's sitting in the ashes of once was the great city of Jerusalem. Perhaps as he's sitting there on the curb of the street, he, he has the smell of smoke in his, his nose and in his hair and in his clothing. He's covered with ashes. He looks over here where once the magnificent temple once stood. And it's been torn to bits. And there's smoke rising up from that ruin. The houses where folks lived that he had known so well, they're empty now. People are dead. People are gone. The city has been sacked by the Babylonians. Destroyed. And they knew why. Jeremiah especially knew why. It was a rebellious group of people who refused to listen to the word of the Lord. And God had told them. God had warned them. God had said it was coming. God had called them to repent. And they would not. And he sent that horrible, horrible thing toward them. So Jeremiah sits in the midst of the ashes. And he says, these are my afflictions. These are my wormwood. (laughs) This is my bitterness. I stood the morning after a friend of mine's house burned down, stood out in the front yard with him. Thankfully, all of them were alive. But everything else was gone. It's a terrible scene. That's where we start. My soul remembers it. Jeremiah says, it's bowed down with me. And then he says this in verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We put a period there and we move on. But we've missed something when we do. We've just identified Him, right? We just identified Him. This is Him. He's great in His mercy. He's great in His faithfulness. But it doesn't stop there. What's our action? What do we do with that? Not just know Him, but what do we do? Next verse. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who... Wait for him to the person who, do you see the word seeks? Seeks him. The person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. 
For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal, any man, offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and our hands toward God in heaven. That's called seeking. That's seeking. You see that picture? That's seeking. Jeremiah would reflect as he writes these words about the man who might be the most instrumental in bringing all this about. His name was King Manasseh. You study his life. He was the, and I I believe this literally, the most wicked individual who have walked this planet. And there's a lot of people to compare him to. But if you read his story, this man made up things in evil that nobody had ever seen before. Wicked as can be. I was reading his story a little bit this morning. As evil as that man was, the day that God put him in hooks and chains and drug him off his throne and took him to Assyria and put him in a prison, that man broke down before the Lord. That man who had put his children in fire, worshipped who knows what, that man broke down before the Lord and sought him out. Do you know what God did? He forgave that man and restored him to his kingdom. Incredible chunk of history, but true of our God. You know, when I think of grace, the avenue of grace is quite an ugly thing. For the avenue of grace involves the the flesh being torn and the brow being pierced and the body being crushed and our Savior dying on a cross. But the soul is saved. And grace and forgiveness are given. These folks have been through a lot we read of in Scripture. And here's the King of Glory knocking on their door. (laughs) The King of Glory wants you. He knocks. He says, open. Let me in. What is he going to deprive you of? What are you afraid that he's going to take from you? How's he going to change your life for the worse? Is he? The Lord is good. Do you know that? The Lord is good. So often we hang on to the trinkets and the the actions and the habits and and all these other things. We hang on to them like, these are dear to me. If I let them in, I've got to let go. You know, that's kind of true in one sense. If your hands are full of all these things, how are you going to turn the knob? He says, open to me. And he is good. Do you trust his character? Do you trust his forgiveness? Do you trust his faithfulness? Here's the king of glory. The king of glory approaches. The king of glory raises the voice. Open the door. Open the door. Lift up the gates. Let me in. 
Who's going to do that? The generation that seeks him. The generation that seeks his face. They are the ones who open the door. Either you will seek him or you will not. Shall he ride circles around your fortress, waiting on you to open the door? Will you yell over the wall, come back at a more convenient time? Some people say, first let me clean up a little bit. Uh, Why don't you let him clean up? You know what? He does a better job. Because he knows where you hit everything. Or will you just simply turn him away? No, thank you. That's a polite way. No, thank you. If he calls on the phone, you see it. Caller ID. There he is. Do you answer the phone? The psalmist does something masterful with this psalm. I told you this the first day we looked at it, and I'll tell it to you again. He doesn't tell us if the gates were ever opened. The last thing asked was, who is this King of Glory? And then it's answered. But we don't have a verse 11, do we? That says, and so they opened the door. That's a masterful way to leave a psalm hanging. I think it's perfect and appropriate for us, don't you? Because guess what the next thing must be? Our action. Our action. What's the appropriate thing for us to do? What is the decision that must be made? This king is at the door. He's great. He's made you. He owns you. He's created all this around you. He's great in every aspect of his character. And he has given you grace. And he knocks. There might be some among us here today, and I'm very serious about this, who do not know Christ as Savior. You've heard it so many times. He's been circling around your fortress for years. The invitation is there, isn't it? He says, open. Believe in your heart. Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess with your mouth. He's risen from the dead. We have those in Romans. I said them completely backwards. If you've got it memorized, you just caught that. He said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is nothing complicated about the fact that this is God's invitation for eternal life. Have you taken it? Have you opened the door? Have you received Him as Savior? Every one of us has that decision. Pastors can't make it for you. I'd love to if I could, but I can't. Wasn't given that position. (laughs) Never told in a verse that I could decide that for you. You decide that. That's an invitation. That stands before us today. Are you going to seek him? Now, we could address it there, and, and maybe as believers we're comfortable saying, okay, let's talk to the unbeliever about this one. But this is also written to believers. And I say, well, how's that? Remember in in Revelation chapter 3, there's a scene, matter of fact, it was even painted, 
by an artist of Jesus standing outside a door knocking. That was written to the church. That was written to the church. And what did he say to that church? He said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone, anyone, will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. Is that an invitation? There's no mistakes in all this. He is the King of glory. It doesn't depend on whether we open the door or not. We're not going to somehow give him uh, credibility or somehow authenticate his claims as God or give him an identity as God based on our response. He is God. That's not going to change. But he is seeking us that we seek him. Do you hear it today? He said, seek me. Seek me. And either you will, or you won't. Either I will, or I won't. Either we will, or we won't. Where are we today? I trust that you're one now who says, I will seek him. That's a generation I want to be part of. How about you? Heavenly Father, before you stands a congregation that you love, that you gave your son for, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins and access to you, that we might be able to stand before you, that we might have the right to call you our Father and claim to be your children, that we might have your word set before us in all of its statements and in all of its history and in all of its illustrations that repeatedly says, Seek me, seek me, seek me. And we've heard those words today. And Lord, now we ask that your Spirit might do His work in our hearts. For we need to be different. We need to be changed. We have sought so many things. But we need to seek you. Lord, not only do we need convicted in this, but we need encouraged in it. And as your invitation is so freely given, we so freely take it. Do your great work in our hearts and in our lives and in our midst and in our church that we might be seekers of God. In Jesus' name, amen.